Welcome in to episode 19 of the Orlando Drummer Podcast. Hope you guys are doing well today. So Chris is actually off today, but uh, I've got a handful of, well, a little bit more than a handful, but quite a few questions uh, that have come in from the member forums of OrlandoDrummer.com uh, via email. We've got some anonymous questions, Instagram, YouTube. So I got a, a good amount of these questions backed up here. So I thought it would be cool for us to do a solo episode and knock out some of these questions. So yeah, we'll get to all of these today. Some really good ones in here ranging from gear to career stuff to even some more um, big brain philosophical type questions, which you guys know are always my favorite. So let's see what's been going on in my world before we dive into some of these questions. Uh, I just wrapped up episode six of Timekeepers, which is super fun for me. It is by far... Well, I don't want to say the most unpopular series I've ever posted, but uh, not a home run series necessarily. You know, drums and watches, that's always been a stretch, always. But um, super fun. It's a passion project of mine. I love doing those videos. They're a lot of fun to make, for sure. It gives me a chance to nerd out, to film some macro B-roll shots, which are always really fun. I get to bust out my Sigma 105 macro lens. That thing's really fun to use. Um, And yeah, man, they're really challenging. So I got a new one of those coming out for you next week. And aside from that, I'm doing some studio rearranging in here, and it's funny, man, studios are a lot like, reminds me of like when I bought a shed. I was like, what size shed do I need? Like four by eight. Like, yeah, four by eight's pretty good. I don't have that many tools. And then a year or two years later, you're like, I need like a 20 by 20 shed. Like you just, you just outgrow things. And man, this studio felt so big when I first moved in a few years ago. And now it just feels really undersized. So I've just got so many little things that you collect over time. Like when you live in one house for a super long time or one apartment and you just end up kind of filling it up with stuff. So I think I'm going to rearrange my uh, little drum closet that I have right behind this camera here. I think I'm going to do that over this weekend. And that'll be uh, that'll be nice. Give me some space to work. So yeah, that's what I have going on in my world. Hope you guys are doing great this week. And uh, yeah, let's hop into some of these questions. So first one here. This is from Stephen Parker, and Stephen is a longtime member of OrlandoDrummer.com. And in the forums there, he asked this. He said, "Hey Adam, I've heard you list your favorite slash most influential drummers before, but I'd love to hear you elaborate on why you specifically enjoy their playing. I know Chris Coleman and Benny Greb should be on this list." All the best and loving the sights. Well, thank you, Stephen. And you're right. I would definitely put Chris Coleman and Benny Greb on that list for sure. I would have to add, I'll add two more just so we don't spend too much time on this question because I could probably do a very long rant uh, depending on how long this list of drummers is. Uh, I'll add Yost Nickel and Dave Dicenzo. I would put them up there. So let me just give you some some thinking points on each one of those specific drummers. So the most obvious one here is going to be Benny Greb. Um, Touch, groove, feel, just all of those intangible, very difficult to quantify elements of his playing. Those are the things that I love the most. And he's also a cool one because I have met Benny many times. Um, I've, I've had a lesson with him before, and I helped him with some video projects a few years ago. So we had many Skype calls and things. And, you know, you always hear that that phrase, you know, it's something in the ballpark of don't meet your heroes because they'll disappoint you sort of thing. Like you have this this image in your head of how a person should behave or what their demeanor might be like. And then you meet them and then you're sort of disappointed because they don't live up to that necessarily. That's not true with Benny. He is cooler than you might imagine, right? He's very down to earth, very relatable um, and a shockingly healthy ego for someone who is as famous, talented um, and as accomplished as he is. Now, what I love specifically about his playing would be honestly like his choices, like his his taste, right? Because it's it's 
you know, it's not technical ability with him. You know, Chris Coleman will be the next guy that we talk about. And with Chris Coleman, it's definitely a technical ability thing. With Benny, it's much more that he could play something that you could learn. You can play a lot of the things that he plays. It's the delivery. It is how he played it. And if you wanted to go to the next level of of analysis, it would be why he played it, right? Um sort of understanding what what some of those choices are and why he makes them that that's what it would be like to to get inside the mind of many greb and it's a very interesting landscape in there so uh for me it's his taste his choices his preferences um and and some of those musical directions that that he tends to go and how they're all flavored and textured with this again intangible touch feel and groove that we all uh, know that he has I, i just love using him as an example of someone who he can play a basic rock beat, just like you and I can, but if you want it to sound how it sounds when he plays it, that's going to take about 20 years, right? It's it's such a, a particularly dialed in uh, touch, feel, and groove. So that's why Benny has uh, always been on my list. Uh, next, we'll do Chris Coleman. Man, for Chris Coleman, it, technical ability, first of all, just the amount of hours the guy has put in on the kit to have uh, the amount of, of concepts down that he has right to be able to execute these high level rhythmic concepts on the kit flawlessly too like and he's to a level too where where certain players have this quality it's like they cannot make a mistake because they are so free within the rhythmic scale that even the mistakes can lead them into another direction where they can just sort of work things out it's like someone who's so good at speaking or, or so good with linguistics that even when they say the wrong word, they can change the sentence in the middle and the sentence still made sense. It's kind of like that. So uh, his execution of everything he plays is just absolutely flawless. Obviously, he has deadly speed. I mean, it doesn't get too much faster than Chris Coleman. Um, And also a weird one with him that you don't hear a lot of people talk about, but but control, like control over his over his output, because for what he is able to play, Let's call that his sixth gear. That's his top gear, like on the highway when he cracks 120 miles an hour and past that. He can go there whenever he wants, but he doesn't, right? It's very, it's not even in like every Chris Coleman video. If you were to line up all the famous YouTube videos of Chris Coleman, whether it's a minor performance or a drum festival or anything like that, only like one in five of them will you see him sort of hit that sixth gear of his playing. And to me, that's a that's a genuinely like a that's just a musical maturity thing. Right. Because I know in all of the different performance videos that I've done over the years, you know, there's many of them where I make my best attempt to play towards that upper end of my skill level because you know, let's be honest, it's likely related to ego where you want to showcase your skills and you want to showcase the best skills that you have at the highest level that you can manage to pull off. And it's so fascinating when you see a guy like Chris Coleman who has that sixth gear and just, you know, it's hit or miss as to whether or not he's actually going to go into it. So to me, that shows a a lot of musical maturity, a real balanced ego in his playing as well. Um, but ultimately, you know, my attraction to his playing is rooted in technical ability. Just absurdly good at everything, right? Uh, next up, I would go Dave Desenzo. And man, if you're not familiar with Dave Desenzo, because he's, I, I, I wouldn't say he's underrated. Everybody that knows who he is knows that he is uh, an absolute world class player. Um, but I would say there's a video. I'll put it on the screen. But I think it's called Two Tone Shoes Something Shoes. Anyway, I'll put it on the screen or link it in the description, but it's a video of him playing back in the 90s. 
And oh my goodness, it, I'll steal a phrase from my buddy Austin Bertram, who described that video. Uh, Austin said, it is one of the best technical displays of advanced drumming in the world. He covers so many different skill sets from double bass to a wide variety of patterns and rudiments on his hands, insane speed, mobility, fluidity. It's just, it it truly is. It's one of the best displays of advanced drumming you could ever watch. If you were talking to, let's just say a friend who was not a musician or not a drummer at least, and they said, show me some absolutely sick drumming, like some of the best in the world. This is the video that you would pull up as that example. So uh, what I personally love about Dave DiCenzo's playing is honestly how emotional it is. His use of some of the some of the tools that we have in our tool belts as drummers. So that would be like, and not just drummers either, like just artistic expression in general. You would have these same tools if you were a painter, right? Like um, tension and release, like all of these like storytelling elements, um, the, the ability to build up dynamically and then let all of that go just to create different emotional responses in your listener or in your viewer you know, through the use of these tools, man, he's so good at making use of his full tool belt. So if you ever wanted to see a drummer that, that elicits a, a hyper emotional response, which is difficult to do without other musical tools like um, harmony, melody, chords, you know, Dave DiCenzo is just a go to example for that sort of thing. So highly emotional, highly expressive playing and not to mention his technical ability is just off the chart. So Dave DiCenzo is absolutely on there. And sort of in that same category, at least in my own mind, would be Yos Nickel. Yos Nickel is, um, to be honest, he taught Benny Greb, right? So you see a lot of crossover between those two. For me, I see that in their triplet vocabularies. There's a lot, of, a lot of similarities in how they express triplets. But with Yost, it's definitely, it's definitely that taste sort of thing. It's very emotional playing, but it's also, he just plays the right thing all the time, right? Like, you know, just imagine you're, you're hearing any song in any genre and we're approaching where you can hear a fill would be. There would be a fill here. And you could imagine that they could do this kind of fill or that kind of fill. They could go in this subdivision or that subdivision. And whatever Yoast picked, I always, when, when the one slams back down, it's sort of like, that was the perfect thing to play. Like, ah, oh, I should have thought of that. Like, I should have known that that's what was supposed to go there. So it's it's predictable in the best way possible. And by that, I mean it, it's like satisfactory. It is what you would have wanted to go there, uh, even if you didn't know it. Once you hear it, it's like, yes, that was the exact part that should have been there. So, Stephen, hopefully that helps answer your question. That's a little bit of an explanation on why I like those four particular drummers. I could probably find three or four more drummers that I could toss into this category of like my my personal favorites. But yeah, man, hopefully that helps answer your question. Next up, we have a question from Josh Friedman, and this is via email. Um, he said, I've finally saved up enough money to shop for my first pro-level kit, but I'm wondering what exactly makes a kit pro-level. It seems that $1,200 and up gets you about the same level of kit that many pros use, and I'm wondering if spending double or triple that amount is actually worth it. Can a $1,200 drum set really compete with a $5,000 drum set? It sure seems like they can. I'm interested in Pearl and Tama, by the way. So this is a really interesting question. It's a good question too. There's definitely a point of, I don't want to say diminishing returns when it comes to how much money you spend on a kit. You know, you're you're on the money though, pun intended, with that $1,200 mark, right? Right around $1,200, let's just talk Pearl and Tama. That gets you in the range of the Session Studio Select, 
fantastic kit from Pearl, and then a Tama Star Classic, which is like a legendary kit from Tama. And yes, you can spend double or triple that amount, quadruple that amount, if you want to go, I don't know, highest end DW Collector Series or SQ2, you know, fully customed out. But there's this weird, I, I wish I knew like the name for what this is or, or what to call it. But let me give you the best example I have here. In the camera world, this happens. You know, you can buy a $100 camera lens. It's decent. You can buy a $300 camera lens, and it's much better. You can buy a five, six, $700 camera lens, and it's way better, worth your money. But once you get above that $700 mark, you know, the cameras then become $900, Each jump from those price points, 700 to 900, 900 to 1100, each one of those price points that you jump, what you're really paying for, despite the amount of money that, that you have to pay extra, you're actually only jumping in quality of the gear itself by like 5%. So you're paying... 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 percent more money for a three, four, five, six, seven, eight percent increase in quality of gear. This happens with cars too, right? Like you can think of a lot of examples of this. Like a fifty thousand dollar car is fantastic. A one hundred thousand dollar car is not twice as fantastic, right? It's not twice as good. You don't get double the features. It's not twice as fast. So there's like this to point, there's this point of diminishing returns uh, when you get to the high end of any type of tech or any type of gear. And so when it comes to drum sets, this is kind of how I look at it. Like that $1,200 mark, that's about how much it costs retail to get what we would consider a pro level drum set. Now that's certainly debatable. You know, maybe there's a $900 kit out there or an $800 kit that you would consider pro level. Pro, I look at it as just, you can make money with this, right? But once you get over that $1,000 mark, let's say, you know, when you spend two thousand, three, four, five, six, seven thousand, yes, the kits are nicer. They absolutely are. I mean, if they weren't, I don't know what you're you're paying for. They're definitely nicer. More attention to detail, um, way more color finish options, more customization options, and all of that could be personally very important to you. But as far as the quality of the sound itself, it's going to only improve by a very small margin as you spend double and triple your money. And this is just the case with, with again, it's like any tech, any gear at all sort of works this way. So it really is a matter of finding the sweet spot, which for you might be at the bottom end of that pro level kit. That might be $1,200. Um, it just depends on what you value. If you value customization, then yes, you do have to pay for that because $1,200 drum sets are not going to be offered in any color that you can imagine. Let's be honest, they're probably offered in like five different finishes and maybe one or two wood options and that's it. But if you have this, this really perfect idea in your head of the kit that you want where it's got the custom finish the custom hardware a specific type of wood grain orientation with different plies that are layered in a certain way custom dimensions across the board yeah you're gonna have to pay for that for sure but if your primary goal in buying this new kit is function if it's something that you want to make money with and that you want to use um, just this to sort of carry your career along if that's the case, then I say don't spend more money than you have to. Buy something that suits your needs for that $1,200 mark. Um, and then, you know, I really like having that goal kit always like like on a pedestal, like one day I'm going to get this one. Um, because to be honest, it, it 
as you get further into your career, you will eventually attain a lot of the things that you want to attain. And it's just life itself, not necessarily your career. As you get older, as you make more money, as you, I don't know, just become more stable in life with your job or whatever your career might be, you're going to eventually get a lot of those things that you had looked forward to for so long. And so it's really nice to have that one far off distant idea, like maybe one day I would just spend $10,000 on a kid. I really like keeping that thing alive. So so yeah, if it's not totally urgent and if it's not just absolutely killing you to not have that dream kit, I would go with the slightly cheaper one, man, and just um, continue to build that long-term custom kit in your mind because there will come a day when you're ready to pull the trigger on that. But if you're on the fence right now and it's just not like it's not like pulling you in with this crazy gravity to spend to spend all this money on this insane kit, then I wouldn't do it. I, I would go I would go with that thousand to fifteen hundred dollar mark. Stick in that range. You'll be super happy, man. There are some truly stunning kits in that price range. Um, and again, if you spent double the money, you're not getting double the kit. It's not twice the quality. It's it's a much smaller margin than that. So hopefully that makes sense, Josh. This is a great question, man. Very cool. All right, next question is from Michael B. on Instagram. He asks, has your practice routine changed at all over time? I've always been told that you can get better at practicing, but still don't think I totally understand what that means. Yeah, I hear you, man. That's always a weird phrase, right? Getting better at practicing. So in my eyes, getting better at practicing involves getting to know yourself. That's a big part of it, right? Like getting to know your own habits and inclinations, some of your bad habits. Like, what do you do during a practice session that makes this go wrong? Because everybody's got got their vices, right? Like things that just distract you or little habits that you build. Like I've heard it referred to as like drummer ADD before where you just, you're practicing, 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 and then all of a sudden you're doing that fill that you've been doing for the last three years. Like, or you're just chopping out for no reason, or you're going to that go-to groove that you play way too much. That sort of thing happens all the time. So identifying what your distractions are, like what your weird, I guess like, I don't know. Yeah, distractions is probably the right word. The right word. Like what, what are you distracted by most often? What pulls you away from that focused center of real practice? Identifying that is gonna be super helpful. Um, and that takes a, a painful amount of self-awareness too. You gotta be really honest with yourself. And sometimes a teacher can help with that as well. So private lessons or even just filming yourself, really that can help as well, right? You'll, you can watch the video back and be a little bit more objective and go, huh, I see where I'm, where I'm messing this up here. So that, that can be really helpful. But for me, my practice routine has changed a little bit over time. One thing that I've that I've incorporated that I cover extensively in the Practicing 101 Masterclass um, is taking breaks. You know, I'm a huge believer in taking breaks. I used to think that, you know, the highest level drummers, the best practicers in the world probably spent six, seven, eight hours practicing straight. I mean, how else does Matt Garska get that good? He must just plop his ass on the throne for eight hours and that's all he does. But in reality... You know, I learned this in uh, in a behavioral science class in college. You know, like this idea of cramming, of just forcing the information down your throat or into your brain, it really doesn't work. It doesn't work on on like a neurological level. That's just not how your brain works. So for me, I've found that this clogged sink analogy is the most helpful way to look at this. So if you think of your brain as a clogged sink, you know, if the pipes are only moving water down so fast, pouring a bunch of water on the top doesn't really work. Maybe you can fill the sink up, but it's going to take a little while for that water to get down the pipes. And you want to think about this in terms of information into your brain. So you really want to 
Put as much information into your brain as you think you can handle. That might be 10 minutes. It might be 20 minutes or 30 minutes, but it's not that long. And then you want to take a break. You want to completely focus on something different. That could be playing a video game on your phone. It could be calling a buddy. It could be watching a YouTube video, not a drum video. Something to completely remove your brain from this this lane that you've been in for a while. Go a different direction and then come back. And what you're doing is you're accelerating the recall of information, right? And this is a different way to think about practicing because when you think about what it is to know something, what it is to know a pattern, it's really what, one of the things that determines how well you know it is how quickly you can recall that information from the depths of your psyche. Can you quickly pull this pattern up into the forefront of your consciousness and then use it or execute it immediately? And one of the ways that you get better at accessing that filing cabinet in your mind is by choosing to recall that information repeatedly. Now, if you just bring that that pattern, that thing that you're working on, that groove, if you just bring that to the front of your mind and you keep it there for 45 minutes or an hour and you say, I'm gonna practice this for one hour every single day. Well, you're only recalling that information from the depths of your mind one time per day. But if you said, I'm gonna practice this for 10 minutes, then I'm gonna do something different for 15 or 20 minutes and then I'll come back to this and you do that five times a day. Well, now you are repeating this this recall action, you're doing that five or six times in a day. And in my mind, this is one of the things that helps helps you more quickly recall that information from the filing cabinet that's in your mind. So I really like taking breaks for that reason. And of course it sounds counterintuitive because it sounds a lot like I'm telling you to practice less and to be lazier in your practice sessions. But I actually think it's a little bit harder because you have to choose to walk away from the kit and it ends up putting so much space and time in between your practice sessions that a practice session might actually take two or three hours because of all of these little breaks in here. But again, I think recalling the information repeatedly is one of the more helpful things that you can do. So if you wanna learn more about some of my philosophies on on practicing, and there's a um, masterclass on orlandodrummer.com, the Practicing 101 Masterclass is what it's called. And in there, I take you through how I personally schedule one hour of practice. And of course, I try and frame up an argument for why I think this is the best way to do it, but it is highly personalized. So I leave plenty of wiggle room in there for you to you know, customize it and make it your own. And there's a, a template in there as well, which will help you sort of adjust the time frame because not everybody has one hour to practice on the nose. Some days it's 40 minutes, some days it's 10 minutes, and some days, you know, it's Saturday morning and I got eight hours to kill. So however you want to structure an hour, you can use the template that's laid out in that masterclass and that will help a lot. So, um, but again, biggest point here when you're asking how has my practice routine changed, it's been customized. I would say that. It's been very, very customized as I've learned my bad habits, my inclinations, and some of the things that I do wrong. I've made adjustments to those over time and become a lot more efficient. So that's how you get better at practicing. It's just identifying you know, who you are and what kind of dumb shit you find yourself doing behind the kit. Our next question is from mad.max2468. This is on Instagram. And he asks, what are some of my favorite drum books? That's a good question, man. I don't know if I've been asked that uh, recently. So I've got... I've got three that I'll give you. Um, first one is Future Sounds. Future Sounds is by David Garibaldi. It's like a funk fusion groove book is how I would describe it. But man, just some powerful ideas in there. A lot of ideas in there are are surprisingly simple. Like, 
you'll <laughs> you'll be able to kind of play it. You can read the pattern and go, oh, I see what's happening there. But executing it with the proper feel to make it feel anything like David Garibaldi, man, that's a that's a much taller order. So you can spend a lot of time in future sounds, but that's a good example of a book where. You really just need like one page at a time. Like don't, you're not gonna finish future sounds. It's, it's just not the way to think about it. But crack it open, get a little, um, an idea, groove idea out of there, and that'll keep you busy for weeks, you know? So future sound is a killer, killer book, and it's fairly old. It can't be more than 20 bucks, so highly recommended. Um, another one would be Yost Nichols' Groove Book and Yost Nichols' Fill Book. He has sent me both of those, or rather I bought one and he sent me another one. Man, I love that the book is not just, you know, sheets of drum notation. That's not at all what what his books are. They are in-depth explanations of concepts that he has. And yes, of course, there are staffs and, and notated grooves and fills and things in the book, but it's much more of like, like his conceptual approach to creating these. So for example, I'm not gonna give away anything in the book in particular, you know, you go spend the $20, it's well worth it, but um, he has an idea called like a switch groove where it's an orchestration concept. So play the groove this way with your right hand on the hi-hats and your left hand on the snare. And then the next time you play it in beats two and three, your right hand goes over here. But if that happens, then your left hand has to do this. Like it's these little rules and, and almost like these rhythmic games that he has in his mind. And they're, they're really like exploration exercises because if you go through the rules that he gives you for any given concept, you realize that the concepts in the book actually expand well outside of the book. So it's a lot more information, this is, is true to concepts in general, but it's a lot more information than what the book actually gives you. So the book just gives you like these, again, it's like little games. And if you play the game on your own, you'll realize that the concept expands well beyond the parameters of the book itself. And so I, I just love that that type of authoring from Yost Nickel because it's really, it's just far beyond what you think of when you think of a drum book. So they're very, very deep, heavily conceptual, um, and I've gotten some killer ideas out of all of those, or both of those books from him, rather. Um, the third one I'll give you is kind of a ridiculous suggestion, but New Breed. New Breed is the kind of book where like, you know, in future sounds where I said you can just you just need like a page. New breed, you just need like a measure. That's all you really need. A measure, maybe two measures, and I'll see you next month. Like it's that absurdly hard. But if you ever, ever want like a serious challenge, whether it's a coordination challenge, like an independence challenge, or I don't know, if you just need to put your ego in check and get a little dose of humility, like that book will will mess you up. It's a, it's a, just brutality from cover to cover. So New Breed would have to go on there. It's just one of the most, um, one of the most intricate books. Uh, some of the concepts in there are just brutal. Also, Chris Coleman talks about New Breed a lot. And if you are familiar at all with some of the exercises in that book, you can see like, oh, when you master this, then you get a Chris Coleman. So hopefully that makes sense. Those would be my, my three book suggestions for sure. But realistically, Future Sounds and Yost Nichols Groove and Fill Books, that's what I would recommend. And New Breed if you want to hate yourself. Uh, next up from, this is on Instagram, Rupin underscore Ido. He says, every time I'm on the kit, I find myself playing the same stuff over and over again. Any advice? Yeah, so I know that feeling. I think everybody knows knows that feeling. I don't know exactly where this comes from because it doesn't really hold up in the language analogy 
necessarily. Like I always use the language analogy, like do we do this in everyday speech? Sometimes, you, you might have noticed like, let me give you a funny example. When I was in high school, the word tight was synonymous with the word cool. And we all said that. My entire friends group said it. Everybody said it. And I, I kind of remember by the time I got to college, I would hear myself saying it and it felt like I was saying it too much. It felt like a phrase that I had repeated, like, that's tight, this is tight, this would be so tight if we did this. It, it was like too deep in my vocabulary and it almost annoyed me that, that I couldn't help but say it. So it, I guess it could happen in, in spoken language. But in drums, in music in general, I think this happens to all instruments, it's way more common. It's way more common that you get a specific riff on guitar or just a lick on the drums or your go-to groove and you just repeat it to the point where it's just like sickening, like you wish you could play anything else. And I do believe that part of mature musicianship is choosing to not play certain things. It's like a, an inverted version of self-control. We think of self-control and musicianship as like practicing and being studious and, and really putting in the time. But also you could just invert that and say sometimes it's what you don't play. Sometimes it's, it's just choosing to not say that thing that you've said way, way, way too many times and getting things completely out of your vocabulary. So it is a self-control issue, that, that's for sure. It really, really is. Um, a couple things you can do. One, take that groove or that fill and try to expand it. Make it where the version that you're playing now is actually somewhat boring. So if it's a groove and there's, let's say, three or four kicks in the groove, see if you can move those kicks somewhere else within the groove, or maybe you can add more. Maybe you can layer in some ghost notes inside of that groove. And what'll eventually happen is that as the groove becomes more layered and more busy, you'll hear different elements of it, and what you'll do is transform that groove into something that's very new, and the older basic version is not one that you're gonna play anymore. Again, the other thing you can do is just choose to not play that at all. So if the groove, or I'm just using a groove as an example, but if the groove is at a specific tempo, don't play at that tempo for two or three weeks, right? Like study something totally different. Um, if it's a fill, those get stuck a lot deeper, I think, the fills do. I would say try something like put, put a lot of time into a brand new rudiment, something to really break up your, your ears so you're not hearing the same patterns over and over, and to get some new muscle memory in there so you've got something new um, for your muscle memory and your mind itself to focus on. So kind of distracting yourself from the thing that you're playing. And last one, I think I already mentioned this, but tempo, tempo. Get in a totally different tempo range where... If you had a 30 second note fill at 60 or 70 BPM that you were just playing all the time because you just learned 30 second notes, try moving up to like 110 or 120 BPM where you really can't play 30 second notes anymore. So that will sort of help limit you um, on how often you're able to get sucked into that same pattern over and over. But yeah, there's no magic trick here. It's just the self-control thing and a couple of little tips and tricks to maybe get you around, um, kind of navigate those waters. So yeah, it's a good question, man. Hopefully that makes sense. Let's see. Got one here from, this is on Instagram at Wilson Jr. underscore drums. He says, how can someone know if they are an intermediate or professional drummer? So the problem with this question is that we're going to very quickly get into a semantic game, right? Where the definitions of intermediate, advanced, professional, beginner, upper intermediate, lower, like these are all relative kind of made up words. 
they're not real. The only one with a true definition, I would say, that you could argue a real definition for would be professional because professional, in my eyes, it just means that you're making money, right? If you're able to make money from what you're doing, then to some degree, you are you are acting as a professional. So I think what you're probably asking is more along the lines of how do you define an intermediate drummer versus an advanced drummer? How do you know which one you are? And in reality, any answer I could give you here is going to be highly, highly subjective because we make up these words, right? Now, as a hyper-individualist, I want to remind you that you have this musical recipe that makes up who you are. So you're going to be very advanced in some areas. You're going to be intermediate in others. You're going to be beginner in others. And you're a weird blend of all of those things. That's what all of us are. And in many ways, that recipe of our of our skill sets in these different categories, whether it's dynamics or you want to group them by genre or it's um, speed, like any skill set that you could that you could lay out, you know, you're going to be good, bad, in between. You're going to be at a different level for all of those skill sets. And again, this creates this weird recipe that makes up your musical identity. So, in totality, you might say that that your average skill set. Uh, across all of these different different skill sets, like your average skill level across those skill sets might be intermediate. Maybe you could come to some some conclusion like that. But again, at that point, who cares, right? Like it's just not that big of a deal to have to label yourself in that way. So I would say the most helpful way you could approach this would be to look at any individual skill set. So let's just say dynamics, which is really vague, but just your ability to control your volume in everything that you play. See if you can sum up where you think you are in the spectrum that is dynamics, right? So like um, if you have no control over your volume whatsoever, we would call that a beginner. If you have infinite control over your volume, we would call that high level professional or extremely advanced, right? And so you're somewhere in between, but put it on a scale of like zero to 100. Are you a 15? Are you a 30? Are you a 57? Like that's a little bit more useful because then you could go through all your different skill sets, give yourself somewhat of like a rating or a grade, and you would hopefully be able to identify which skill sets are just lacking. And in the skill sets that you're like more of a beginner or that you just get kind of a lower score, a lower grade, you could put a little bit of time there and then in totality, you just bring up your average skill set, right? This would be the best way that I could describe to look at it, but in reality, it's almost like a identitarian thing to say like, I'm an intermediate drummer, but soon I'm gonna be an advanced drummer. Like, if you say so, I guess you might be, but no one is standing around with a clipboard judging this stuff. Like, And, and even if they tried, I don't know what's on the clipboard because you can't quantify any of these skills um, into these like hard lines, right? Like, So my real answer is that the groups don't exist. There isn't some group of intermediate drummers that we can put in a very specific box with any realistic parameters. Same with advanced. You know, the closest one you would get would be professional, and that's just based on the parameter that you could make money or not be making money, and that metric would help determine what makes a pro musician a real pro. But again, this is all pretty loose stuff. So yeah, my advice would be to take inventory of your skill sets, find the ones where you are like let's just say more of a beginner than others, put time in there and that will bring up your your average score if that's even a if that's even a thing. But yeah, man, that would be my advice. And 
beyond that, ditch the groups. It doesn't matter. Nobody is asking if you're an intermediate or advanced drummer uh, besides you. You're the one who will ask yourself that. And if you're the only one asking and you're the only one answering, I say who cares? Probably not even worth uh, worth addressing it, man. So hopefully that makes sense. All right, so those are all the questions that I have for you today. And I'm gonna close out by asking you guys a question. Um, you know, several... Several months ago now, maybe six or eight months ago, I posted a couple videos about upcoming changes on this channel, and we are amidst those changes right now. Um, that would be this podcast, mostly. As you guys have probably seen, I've really cut back on the amount of lessons that I put out, and that is primarily because I have put out um, more lessons than any single human would would ever be able to consume. I really don't think there's a single person on the planet, a single drummer on the planet, who has watched and learned everything I had ever put out. That would be kind of absurd and a little egotistical for me to assume that anybody had ever done that. Um, and really, I just needed, I needed a break. I needed a break from doing the same thing for 10 years. And this podcast has been really refreshing and really enjoyable. But as I assess the drum industry, as it's changing, as it's becoming tech dominated and all of these changes that we've seen, I have a whole video addressing some of those changes. Um, you know, I'm really curious about what it is that you guys see is still missing from the drum industry. Because there's a weird reality of the drum industry, and that is that it has always been, at least in my perception, quite a bit behind other industries. If there's something that happens in the guitar world, the drum world sees it three to five years later. This is always, always the case. And many of the things that the drum industry is going through right now, some of the topic shifts, the content style shifts, the, the shift from educational content towards entertaining content, that stuff happened many years ago in a lot of other industries, and now it is happened or is happening to the drum industry. And so with that said, I think it's important that we all survey this small community that we live in, be it online or otherwise, and say not only do we like what is happening here, um, but, but how can this be improved upon? So I'd like to ask you at home, what do you think the drum industry is still missing? What is it that you feel like this industry or this this online community, not necessarily Orlando Drummer, but the drum community as a whole. What is it that you feel um, you don't get from this community? Is there some type of content, be it lessons or podcasts or anything you can think of um, that you would love to see but you never have? I'm really curious uh, when you guys survey this world, what do you see? I know what I see, but I feel like I don't ask enough um, what you guys, the the other drummers that make up this community, you know, what do you guys see here, and uh, what do you think we could uh, we could do not only as a community but as individuals to make this uh, to make this a better, more productive, more helpful, healthier place for us to talk about and express, you know, our love for drums. All right, that is all I have for you in this one. If you guys have any questions for future episodes, feel free to shoot those to chris at orlandodrummer.com or you can send them to me directly, adam at orlandodrummer.com and we will um, we will bankroll those for a future episode of this podcast. I really appreciate you guys listening. Make sure to check out my other podcast, All In With Adam. It is a non-drumming podcast with a somewhat of a philosophical focus. Um, there will be links in the description of this video to check that out. And of course, remember, as always, you can use code ODP PC on orlandodrummer.com. That will save you 25% on your first two months of online drum school. Orlandodrummer.com is a online education platform in the style of Netflix. There are over 170 hours um, of drum lessons there, over 40 albums of drumless play-alongs. It's one of the biggest in the world, if not the biggest in the world. Audio and video masterclasses, content creator-focused lessons, behind-the-scenes content, 
Trust me, you'll find something you like. Seven day free trial at the link in the description. I would love to have you guys on board there. All right, thanks for tuning in guys. Adam here, the Orlando Drummer. This has been episode 19 and I will catch you in the next one. Bye.